average person speaks about 16,000 words each day. In the not-so-distant future, the government rules that women are restricted to daily word count of 100. They are banned from holding jobs, reading, or writing, with the counter being strapped on the wrists of newborn girls. What would you do to get things back to normal? To make the future better for your girls and all the girls around the world. The counter on her wrist resets itself at midnight. Her daughter Sylvia's would do the same. Her boys don't wear counters. Her daughter still attends school, learning about simple accounting for households, basic math that will help her manage the funds for the groceries, and that evening at the kitchen table, your husband Peter will ask the right question that will simply result in the daughter nodding or shaking her head instead of just using words to answer any questions. While the conversation is happening at the kitchen table, Mila is wondering if the boys, her oldest son who is 16, and her twins who are 11 years old are teasing their sister Sylvia, who is only six, asking her open-ended questions in order for the words to be added to her counter. Peter, Mila's husband, just puts the finger to Sylvia's mouth every time she's not actually supposed to use any words, rather answer any questions with a nod or the shake of the head. And Peter asks his wife, Mila, how is her vocabulary? But then, realizing that that would require his wife to use any words, he rewords it and says, like, is she improving? To which Mila shrugs. Sylvia only has 100 words to utter a day, so how is she to even gauge that? You're a world-renowned linguist, Peter reproaches her, to which Miller responds, no, I'm not, and the word count on her counter goes to a single word left for her to say that day, which she uses when she puts Sylvia to sleep, saying night to her. There is no bedtime story. Both the mother and the daughter have learned to accept this as normal over the past year. Today, to wrap up this year, I'm bringing you into the world of Vox, Christina Delcher's book about where, in near future, women's rights have regressed even further, beyond Roy v. Wade being overturned. I will try to reserve my opinions for the end, which we know <laughs> is very fucking hard for me, and you will notice the parts of the book that I struggled with. Despite of those parts, I still find this to be the best book that I have read this year, and I really, really wanted to talk about it. I have read it twice, once to sort of, like, write up the script and, like, the recap of it, and the first time a month kind of before that, and I devoured the book in, like, a day and a half in both cases. There are some parts that I definitely like more, and there are some parts that are very open-ended, and I obviously like them a lot less. I would only say, before we get back into the book, if you like dystopia, if you like books like The Handmaid's Tale, and by like, I mean, like, they make you feel enraged and make you want to do something, this is definitely the book to read. If you've read the book and you're here just to see what other people's opinions and interpretations of the book are, uh, it is still the one and only Vox. I have just changed a couple of names for the characters just for copyright reasons. So Mila had put her daughter Sylvia into bed, and she is in her room going through the scrapbook of the places in Italy that she had been to, wondering what would happen if domestic efforts were to be spreading abroad. When her sons would watch TV, Mila recalls Italians and every European nation calling them extremists. 
They mock them with memes of sodomy, and no wonder, when she chats with her parents over Skype, her husband is the one speaking on her behalf. As she's flipping through this scrapbook of pictures, Mila actually remembers how their passports went before their voices did. So, one December, she just realized that the boys' passports have expired, and so has hers and Sylvia's. And she went online to go through the passport application, just a normal, regular procedure to renew those passports. However, there, she was faced with a different kind of questionnaire, with the first question being, is the passport holder woman or a man, rather male or female. And when, for her and Sylvia, she chose female, she was faced with red screen. Red as blood. She was given a number to call and an email to use. She called the number hundreds of times, nobody was picking up, and after two weeks, she got a response to her email, and the response led her to contact her passport application center. One week later, she will find out that her passport had been invalidated. And luckily, some women and children managed to escape. Maybe they were privy to this information because their partners worked for the government, so they already went across the border in boats. But in the meantime, the walls were built between US and Canada, and then also North and South America. Peter just sort of shakes her away from her thoughts, her husband, and he says, don't linger on what used to be, which is easy for him to say. They used to lie in bed, they used to play board games with the kids, she used to have girlfriends at home, or just go out for drinks, go to cinema, go to book clubs, debate politics in wine bars. And before all of that, there was Gina the outspoken one, the girl that always protested, pushing people to vote, described as hysterical by her son, Stephen, who was watching TV in her flashback. So, in Mila's flashback, Stephen is watching TV and Gina is in one of the shows debating with other women just prior to the elections. She's talking about pay inequity and promoting her book with a series of dolls on the cover, all with a gag in their mouth, very much reminiscent of Walks by Christina Delcher. She was saying that we are on the slippery slide to prehistory. Think about where your daughters will be when courts turn back the clock. Think about when you wake up in the morning and realize you don't have a voice. Mila's son Steven just takes the remote and uh, changes the program to Duck Dynasty, the reality TV series. But soon after, he finishes his second coke and just comments how fun this reality show is compared to what they watched before, he says he has to go to sleep. He has AP Religious Studies tests tomorrow. He describes it as a philosophy of Christianity, as a course that replaced both biology and history. But Mila, at this point, isn't thinking that much about that. She puts Gina back on, because that's kind of in the back of her mind. And we find out that the two of them know each other since high school. It feels that even through the television screen, Gina is judging her, accusing Mila of not doing anything, just the way that she didn't do anything back when they were in their dorms. Gina was about to go to one of the marches while Mila was just studying for her test, and Mila did sociolinguistics, so she was prepping for this test next morning, and Gina told her how what's going on with Supreme Court right now is more important than any test that she would ever have. Mila refusing to go to this march might be when their friendship went south. 
In the past, in that dorm room, Mila told Gina how she likes her little bubble. She doesn't like to be judged for not going out, not protesting, not voting, not doing anything for the future that she can't predict. And Gina told her that she just hopes no one ever comes along to burst it. When her lease was up, Gina was gone from the dorm, and the two of them never spoke again. And present Mila can't stop thinking that maybe the election thing, the executive order thing, wouldn't have happened had she been more like Gina Juarez. But the executive order did happen. Women have allotments of 100 words per day. Their books, their notepads, their pens are all locked away, with the head of the household holding the key. The access to the letterbox, gone. The access to their email accounts, gone. They can only access their phones or their husband's laptop, like, for example, to speak over Skype with their parents who live abroad in Italy, like in Mila's case, only if their husband allows for it, and it's usually in his study, in the part of the house that he has the access to. She can still drive, however, she can still go and get groceries, obviously, depending on her husband's bank account. She can still get her hair done, but she hadn't had any changes to her hairdo, because that would be wasting way too many words in order to communicate that to the hairdresser. She can still read the washing instructions on the tags of the clothing, and they can still go to the cinema. You would still see women, and you would hear female voices. However, they would be written by men, even though these actresses would be given more words when they're on the job. As Mila is watching her husband on the porch after school, joking with the boys, while her and her daughter Sylvia are chilling at the kitchen counter, silent, she is thinking about the last election, which would be when Peter tried to speak up. But he was never the kind to do so, and because of that, he was not the kind of man that somebody would listen to. We find out how the Bible Belt, the religious and conservative South of the US, started expanding their propagations. Women like Gina did see this coming. Suddenly, the whole country was leaning to the candidates with, quote-unquote, country's best interest at heart. After the midterms, those best interests at heart started becoming clear. They're going into the 90s. After elections, more into... 70s, but it was much worse. Gina would say that they went more like into 1890s and 1870s. Gina might have seen this coming, but Mila did not. And you can't protest what you can't see coming. And these guys, they ambushed them and had it all prepared. Once a plan was in place, everything can happen overnight. Peter is feeling frisky tonight. The kids are asleep, and even though Mila was never the one to talk much during sex, it still feels different. You are left feeling, when reading this scene of the two of them having sex, like, thinking whether she is consenting, because he knows that she doesn't have any words left on the tracker. She can't say yes, she can't say no, because he will realize soon what happens if she was to go over the word limit of the day. So, no whispers can be exchanged. Would she be happier? If he shared her silence, she's just caught into so many thoughts as just this act between the husband and the wife is happening. So, Peter notices that and asks her what is wrong, and she kind of kisses him to just talk 
her way through this in the only way that she can. After having sex that she couldn't consent to, she thinks of a conversation she once had with her gynecologist on, like, whether the gynecologist actually can switch off and think about sex not in, like, scientific terms, not sort of, like, in the technical terms, as if, like, she's on the job. And that is exactly what, actually, the gynecologist did during medical school, because it kind of, like, helped her prep for the tests. But now, she said, once she had this conversation with Mila, that she actually enjoys it. So, Mila is thinking, does she enjoy it? Or does she hate her husband just a little bit? And those are her last thoughts before she dozes off. She's woken up to the screams, and the first thing she notices is her husband here is still fast asleep. And sarcastically, the first thought that comes to her groggy mind is, well, someone has to carry the load of extra work that cancelling half of the workforce had created. But then chills go down her spine, because the screams are coming from her daughter's bedroom, that is, like, the furthest away from hers, saying, Mommy, don't let them get me on repeat. And Mila, in this case, has no idea what time it is. She has no idea if the counters have reset, if it's after midnight. So, she just rushes to the room to cover her daughter's mouth, just wondering, like, how many words had she said. It's 11.30 p.m., so it's still the same day. She has no words left for the rest of the hour. And Peter has now woken up, the boys have woken up, everybody's sort of at this doorstep to the daughter's room, trying to pacify her. If she speaks with her hand over her daughter's mouth, her daughter will share the same shock that she is to endure. So, Peter comes into the room saying, like, Daddy's here to make it all right, and the boys are all awake, calming her down, while Mila just watches and listens, reminding herself she doesn't hate her sons, she doesn't hate the men. They weren't the ones to put her in this position, where she can't even speak to calm her daughter down out of her nightmares. As her father and her brothers are putting her to bed and calming her down, Mila goes to the kitchen. She finds some grappa, and she waits for midnight while sipping on it. And that moment, just as the clock turns to 12, she heads onto the back porch and starts screaming at the top of her lungs. She's screaming, you fucking bastards, hate you all. She's just using all of the words that she has left, right on the dot. And at that moment, you can see the lights going off in neighboring houses. The men are obviously getting out, being like, I will call the police. What's going on? Calm down your wife. While the wives are hiding behind the curtains, like her neighbor live hiding behind her husband, silent. So, Peter runs from upstairs, downstairs, to the porch to muffle her mouth. If Mila is to utter another word, he's going to absorb the shock that the counter is going to produce with her. The next morning comes around, and Sylvia is the one to judge her, and it pains Mila, because she would always make sure to have enough words left to tell her kids that she loves them as she's putting them on the bus. But this morning, she can't do that. The postman greets her, like, right after she sends her daughter to school, but she points to her wrist to tell him, like, she doesn't have any words 
left. And of course, the postman is a he, and sort of like she kind of points towards like, yeah, possibly even taking the letters, like the normal thing that you would do if you were to see like postman walk, so that he can go back into the van, like continue doing his thing. But of course, this can't be done, because as a woman, she doesn't have the access to the mailbox. He has to physically put the letters in there. Before he leaves, she notices that he turns to her and blinks very slowly three times. And at this point, we kind of think that this might be a code for something, but we still don't know what for. Now, Mila looks over to the other side as the postman gets out of um, her parkway and she sees her neighbor Liv with a scarf on to her drive towards the church. You kind of get a feeling, again, like as I was reading this, whether Mila thinks that Liv is also living a very miserable life, possibly even like getting abused, even though like Liv is clearly more on the side of the pure people, the conformists to the regime. As we go back in time to the second mention of the fundamentals of modern Christian philosophy, Stephen had that test, right, that he was prepping for and going to sleep early for. So Mila goes through his book to find chapters like In Search of a Natural Order in Modern Family, that had sentences like Head of every man is Christ. Head of every woman is a man. Teach the women to be obedient. It had chapters on feminism, but obviously written by men. Giving advice for men on teaching their wives to respect them, children to respect their parents. To Mila, everything that she was reading here screamed of extreme right fundamentalism. But Stephen, who is 16, was all for these tips, all for gardening, cooking chapters in this book when it was first mentioned. But he kind of like saw it as like, no, this isn't for you, mom. Like, it's not for you. No, no, no. I see that you do have like a very respectful job. It isn't all women. This is for those women who just get out of the house to get some kind of identity. Yeah, I'm all for them learning how to cook and be housewives, but, like, you deserve to have your own job. Some women just don't. In Stephen's eyes, the book is right, because, again, he says, like, no, the book says, mom, like, men and women are built differently. If you were to go to the gym, you would never have the same amount of muscle that I do. You would never have the biceps like this. And he actually reads this next line to her from the book. Woman has no call to the ballot, but lives in a sphere of her own. She is the guardian of the home, her role as angel of the home is the holiest and queen-like assignment to mortals. So he's like, mom, you see, you're a queen. To which Miller responds, I wish you dropped it. Like, why can't you just drop these stupid-ass subjects? But he says he can't, because he needs AP credits for college. So they had taken away history and biology making sure that people, like students of Stephen's age, so like young teenagers, do not learn about women having rights for history, about suffragettes, about any movements in the past, and this is how they did it, making it compulsory for students to take subjects like these in order to make it to college. By making subjects like these compulsory, men are taught how to regress women's rights and take away their words and opinions. 
And with no words left on the present day, Mila, after sending her daughter to school, just goes back and switches on the TV. And here, in her bathrobe, she sees a president delivering the speech. But she isn't paying attention to the president himself, rather to the first lady that is obviously behind him, dressed in a way that she knows she hadn't chosen herself, with the bracelet, the word counter, matching her dress color, and obviously the sleeves being three quarters, everything done in like a very pristine, prim and proper way. And she's just thinking how even the first lady doesn't have more of a word allowance a day than any other common woman does. She also has only 100 words to say. And how beyond the stage, when her husband is the one delivering a speech, she will be accompanied by free bodyguards at all times during the day. She had seen those types of eyes before. The depressed look in a woman's eyes that she knows those secret service men hold her pills, they check for her bed before she goes at night, just to ensure that she doesn't do anything to herself, that she doesn't die by suicide. Mila still has options of hundreds of channels to choose from, so she's just flicking through. And at that point, I think she decides to watch golf, because of all of the movies and all of the series that she could watch that would all, of course, be PG, the channels that she could never go through are the ones that are password-protected, obviously, the ones that wouldn't be PG and could only be viewed by men. Before she can even change the channel to something other than golf, she hears a doorbell, and this surprises her. She isn't expecting anybody. At the door, it's pissing down with rain, and she sees her neighbor live the one that was hiding behind the curtain last night as Mila was having a meltdown. So, because it's raining, Mila lets her in. And Liv is holding um, the sack of sugar and the measuring cup. And when she's in, it seems like Liv is there out of solidarity, but also Mila doesn't feel that way, because Liv takes her wrist and just smiles. Just as in, like, okay, we can't really even exchange any words. As Mila is pouring the sugar for Liv before she leaves, it brings on another flashback. A flashback of another debate that Gina was having on TV one such day when it was raining and Liv again was at her door, wishing to borrow some sugar. This time around, however, the executive order is yet to happen. So, Lee was just discussing what she was seeing on TV. On the screens, Gina was engaged in a debate. And debate was just about how many women reported sexual assault in the 1960s, and how now it is five times that. So, Gina's argument was funny how you use the word reported. Like, how many women didn't feel comfortable to do so? How many women weren't taken seriously? How many police officers actually didn't take down the report because it came from a woman? Then they moved on to stats on antidepressant usage, and no one cared about Gina's claims on skewed statistics that this is actually how it started, because nobody cared about her side of the story. There was another pair of women on that debate with a stack of pie charts, and people like Liv. Mila doesn't have any words left to ask her neighbor if, since that point in time, she had changed her mind after her voice had been silenced. So, Liv takes her sugar and goes back home. 
And at this point, Mila hears the brakes, and she knows because, like, her sense of hearing is so acute, especially, like, after her voice had been taken away from her, she hears her husband's car. However, this time around, it's followed by three other vehicles, and that is alarming. She thinks they're all there for her outburst. She sees one of the men coming out of the car, and this man is easily recognizable. He's the star of the movement, the reverend. It brings on the memories of the speeches of all of the American family. How this man was saying God had brought him traffic. He would first put his phone number, like the phone numbers for the church, on um, the screen, and then those would be replaced by social media links. And at first, no one believed that people would actually ring the numbers, go and follow his social media pages, but they did. Now he's in her living room, calling her doctor, acknowledging her PhD, and his right-hand man is removing the tracker of her wrist. Since last spring, this is the first time that Mila would be able to speak freely. And as the men were entering the house, she was changing the channels, just again, like, out of the fear that they are going to judge what she's watching, she changed it to CNN. So even before the reverend speaks, she picks up on some words on the TV, words like trauma, president, and brother. After getting her husband to get cups of water for the man, which, of course, they're extremely judgmental about, but they're not voicing it because there's a precedent here, there's an issue at hand. She finds out from the reverend that president's brother, Bob Myers, had been involved in a skiing accident. The left side of his brain had been affected, in particular, the area that is known as Wernicke's area. And what comes out of this man for the rest of his life will be absolute gibberish, unless she helps him. So Peter comes in with his glasses of water and gives Mila the brain scans for her to assess them, because we find out she's the country's lead expert. And the brain damage is in this left hemisphere of the brain, and what Mila is required to do is, as part of the team, work on anti-Wernicke aphasian serum. Brief lesson on aphasia, and this is where my beef begins, okay? With Christina, this is where the beef begins, because why am I googling this shit? <laughs> why am I, from this point on, everything that comes to do with this brain damage, I have to google it, because it's very technical. It's a fictionable girl. Why is this so technical? So, Aphasia is a language disorder that's caused by damage in a specific area of the brain that controls language expression and comprehension. So, what President's brother here in the book has is even more specific, because it affects the Wernicke's part of the brain that is named so after, like, the German guy that, again, looked into it first. I don't know. I didn't look that deep into it. It's the area that's responsible for language comprehension. So, this in real life, right? Like, if you use your ability to speak, you have to go through speech therapy. In this world, however, in the fictional world of Vox, this is cured by a serum that Mila has to work on. So, they go through the We'd Like You on our team, so does everybody else, you know, the whole Nelly Furtado song, except she's not part of the team. She knows what this entails. For the duration of the project, she will have the counter of her wrist. However, right as she's done, as the president's brother is back on his feet, just back speaking fluently, 
the thing goes right back on and there are no changes made. Bearing that in mind, Mila is trying to suss out the situation of like, okay, what is in it for me and everybody else, really, because you clearly need scientists like this. You clearly need this part of the workforce that actually, yes, has the talent, has the degrees on projects like this, you know, saving lives. And what she learns is that her, personally, she is going to get a bonus, right? So she will be paid and then we'll get a bonus if she finds the cure in 90 days. And from the Reverend, for the first time ever, because this isn't something that she would hear him say on TV, she learns that the quota will actually be increased in the future. And that Reverend's hope is, like, people is just going to settle into this rhythm. Like, the bracelets will not even be necessary. And Mila is extremely triggered by this world, by this word bracelet, because they're not fashion statements. She remembers the day that she was told that the men are going to be coming to install the cameras. So the cameras from what I gauged are installed at the back and the front of the house, just for everybody to monitor the mailboxes and also also something that isn't like very clear to monitor the sign language so that women are really restricted to 100 days because if they were to be signing that would defeat the whole purpose of the regime this would also be the day when they would lock the books and would offer the choice of colors for her and sylvia the colors for the quote-unquote bracelets there were only five colors at the time, and the, the advice was, yes, choose pink for your girl. So Mila did the opposite, and she chose red for defiance. They would then come to everyone's house and lock even the alphabet books away. So even for somebody like Sylvia not to be able to learn how to read or write. She didn't believe it at first. She's like, yep, this just, again, looks like a tracker, looks like a smartwatch that I have just replaced my Apple Watch for. Until she defied it. She went over 100 words and she was shocked and knocked out flat in front of the whole family. What she learned since is that the pain increases with every infraction. So for every 10 words after that, the charge increases by 10 microcoulons and then 10 microcoulons, so on and so on. Again, by googling, I think this is a fake unit. So sitting in front of the reverend here in her own living room, she's thinking, does she have a choice? And she asks him, that. She remembers when Peter went through the AP religion book that Stephen was studying from, and when, you know, she was having the argument with her son about him dropping the course. How Peter said that it's not really that bad after literally not reading it and just flipping through the pages, remembering that this is the exact moment when she started hating him. She started hating her husband. She doesn't have to do this for her husband. She doesn't have to jump on board on this project that she technically will never feel as part of for her three sons. 
she will do it for Sylvia. The men leave fully believing that Mila is on board of this project, so they leave without her tracker being on her wrist. So she first starts negotiating this with Peter, because we learn that Peter works as president's science advisor. So she wants him to negotiate some deal for her, to ask the president to get the colleague that Mila used to work with, called Ling, on the project with her, and also for Sylvia's counter to be taken off completely. The kids come back from school, and the first dinner back seems like a challenge. Like, all of the boys, but especially Sylvia, are looking at her like, as in, like, why can she suddenly talk freely? She asked what's going on in school, and Sylvia is looking at her with wide eyes, so sort of, like, admiring her, I guess, for, like, being able to talk freely and not understanding it fully, but also something is off. And to figure it out, Mila starts asking Sylvia close-ended questions, like, did something bad happen at school today? Sylvia nods. Are you scared of somebody? Sylvia nods again. And the perpetrator, the person that her own daughter is scared of, is Stephen, Sylvia's older brother. Right after dinner, Mila follows Stephen into his room, and this is where, for the first time that evening, she sees a pin on his collar. And the pin had the letter P on it. P, not for prefect. If you're a Potterhead, this is where my mind went. And I was like, oh my god, remember all the stigma that was associated with that, and how nobody wanted to be a prefect? Was like, so much hassle, so much work. Well, here kind of entitled, you know, like, gives you a lot of work that you really shouldn't be doing, because it stands for pure. And Mila had seen the pure badge before, on the women with stats, with pie charts, that were pairing Gina Juarez apart on TV, on her neighbor Liv, and also on Liv's daughter Julia, which will end up being Stephen's crush, and possibly girlfriend, basically his love interest. You have to earn them, mom, Stephen says to her, and she asks him, like, okay, how do you earn them? Now, tell me more about how do you earn a pure badge. He got recruited. They needed people, they needed boys to go from the only boys' schools um, to do rounds, basically, in girls' schools, to show them what happens when you go over the word count, or rather, as he puts it, how the bracelets work. By the way, he tells Mila, I wouldn't encourage my sister to pick sign language up. Signing defeats the purpose of what we are trying to do here. It's very much implied that people are researching the new devices, as cameras installed outside of the house just won't cut it. So, he volunteered to beta test the new devices, the new bracelets, as he calls them. And Mila could go now, she's thinking, to speak to Peter about this, to get him to speak to her son, to get him not to wear the badge and not to go and, like, basically intimidate his sister and all of the other girls. But her husband was not in a believer category, rather. He was not one of the pure men. He was not a woman-hating asshole. He's just weak. So she will rather dream of the man that was not. 
Enter Lorenzo. That night, Mila gets up from the bed she shares with her husband and goes to make some Italian coffee in one of the cafeteras and think of her lover. The last time that they would speak would be at their workplace. Well, that other time didn't really involve much talking. Was it the Italian coffee, she thinks? Was it the language? Working on a late-night project, the two of them sharing same interests, working for the same place? The affair would begin regardless, at Lorenzo's office, and the secret cottage that they would go to do the deed at would become the oasis of love. Two months ago, actually, so after the executive order, after her voice had been taken, she risked everything for love when kids were at school. She went into a supermarket and she saw him in one of the aisles. He asked her to wait and they would go to the secret cottage for her to return before kids went back from school. She thinks of this man who occupies the pleasant part of her brain before she returns to bed. She knows nothing more can happen because Lorenzo is also probably back in Italy, safe from the world they're living in. The next day, the reverend would actually make it public information that Mila will be back to work as the expert on the case, and that President's brother is going to be back to normal in no time. However, Mila now wants to negotiate more as the men are back at her house. Uh, she asks for her daughter's quota to be increased, and at first, Reverend seems to be like thinking about it, be like, how about 150? How about 200 words per day? On average, like, I have listened to interviews, right? I have to like put an interlude here, because just try, just try as an experiment to measure when you reach 100 word quota per day. Like, even if you live by yourself, even if you, like, don't interact with that many people, like, sometimes you will just utter a couple of words to yourself. If you have a pet, you will most probably reach that word count by, like, even before lunchtime, just by chatting to a pet, like, having a work meeting, things like that that you don't even, like, think about. It's just so unbelievable that, like, oh, yeah, I would raise the word quota to, like, by about 50 words. That still does nothing. It does absolutely nothing when the average word count is about 15 to 20k words a day. Back into the Mila's living room from that sideline, as she's trying to negotiate, well, the reverend actually mentions if she doesn't accept, if she goes against them this time around after they made the whole public statement, they're actually releasing the new trackers. Here, she just has to become a beta tester for one, because he has one right there. So, swear words now take 10 words off the counter. If she was to say any of the swear words, she has 10 words less to utter during the day. Plus, of course, they have to uh, read a whole script into a microphone. Now, these devices are equipped with a mic as well, and this will not count towards uh, the word quota for the day, which you're like, yeah, this is great. However, you're then faced with a script that sounds very much like indoctrination. So, he gets her to read it out in her own living room in front of him. The script goes something like this. I believe that men were created in the glory of God and that women are the glory of the man. You get the gist. She just lost her voice for the second 
time. And with further radicalization for grown-ups, they had plans for the kids, too. Mila is about to find out as her daughter comes back from school. So, picking her up from the bus stop, her daughter, who, like, yes, yeah, still has, like, 100 words a day, doesn't seem to be that ready to, like, talk to her mom or just, like, share anything that she had learned from school. Uh, she also notices that Sylvia has, like, chocolate around her mouth, as if, like, she had been given something like ice cream or chocolate at school. And at the kitchen counter, Sylvia points to her device, to her torture tracker, saying, lowest. Her daughter had spoken three words the whole day. She had also returned home with a letter directed, obviously, to the head of the household, Peter, as the Medal of Honor. The letter would inform the head of the family of the rebrand, if you wish, the pure girls' school, where they would have daily contests. The girl with the lowest word count of the day would get ice cream as a prize. And then, at the end of the month, they would do the tally of the counts, and um, the winner, the girl with the lowest amount of words spoken for the whole month, is going to get an age-appropriate gift. So, for girls of Sylvia's age, it would be a doll, for those over 16, it would be makeup. So, they're trading voices for shit, Mila says, and just like that, 10 words go off her counter. Peter is, however, home with another letter, and this is a letter from the president. The letter states, please call me with your price, and it's directed to Peter's wife, Mila. So, before she makes the call, obviously, she's looking at her counter, like, how many words does she have, and she thinks of what she wants to say. And just like that, Sylvia rushes into the room with a drawing. She drew, like, a normal, as much as it can be normal in this type of world, drawing of her family, like, portrayal of the family. Everybody is accurately depicted, meaning that two women in the household have their bracelets on. However, Mom is smaller than anybody else. Mila is the smallest person in this picture. So, with the torture device still on, Mila calls the president, using all of the words that she had for that day. She wants hers and Sylvia's counter removed. She wants her daughter excused from school so that she can homeschool her. And she wants Ling, her ex-co-worker, on the project full-time. Peter answers the return call, and she's got a deal. As she's waiting for the bracelets to be removed, Mila has another flashback of refusing to vote, with semester coming to an end, and Gina and her still being friends, but really the friendship dwindling at this point. She also starts dating Peter at this time around, and we find out that Gina didn't have a nice opinion on Peter, that actually she thought he was a safe and quiet option. She called him a pussy. Mila remembers why guys never cared for Gina, and why Gina never cared for the guys. Because, like, at this point, when they went to, like, one of the school parties, Gina actually tried to kiss her, tried to kiss her friend Mila when she was drunk. And at this very moment, Mila is thinking, where did she end up? Where did Gina end up? Because gays didn't have any options. It was either being sent to conversion therapy or to camps, where they're to slave themselves day and night, only for them at night to return to cells, and to be placed um, with another gay of the opposite sex. So, 
Here, Gina would be placed with a gay man, and the idea there that the reverend had is that, well, they'll get the idea soon enough for the two of them to start engaging in a straight relationship, and that would be the only way out for somebody like this, because on these camps, on these farms, them slaving themselves, their counters are set to zero. They cannot speak. And with them engaging, possibly faking a straight relationship, they might get the prize of having 100 words a day and possibility of one day living a normal life. The emphasis on the normal here being said in a very sarcastic way. One of the last gestures of Gina's was to hand Mila a book, very much like Vox, and Mila saying this would never happen, with Gina replying, easy to say that now. The reverend's men come back, and Sylvia didn't take the counter being taken off her wrist well, because she was pissed she would have won the contest tomorrow for the lowest word count. That evening at the dinner table, Stephen is not even noticing that like his sister is freely speaking, that his mom is freely speaking, because he's so obsessed at telling the family about this government grant that they're introducing, where a man is to get a government job and 10k grant if they're to get married by the age of 18. Mila obviously like starts protesting and he says like it's not your choice. The dads are the one to sign off on this decision. And of course, Julia, his crush in this case, right, has no say either because what kind of discussions are they going to have as teenagers 16 years of age? And also, what discussions are they going to have when she has 100 words a day to utter? For Mila, this is just one other example of how the government managed to introduce this regime, by offering incentives before the teenagers can even make rational decisions, with women's opinions being completely irrelevant. So, getting ready for the office next morning, Mila has another flashback of her and Lorenzo just trying to keep their hands off each other, as he tells her how they isolated the protein. They already had a cure for the Wernicke aphasia, for the condition the president's brother has, is the whole gist that you need to know here, right? So, Lorenzo knows it, Ling knows it, the co-worker that is going to be working on the project with them, and Mila knows it, but nobody else had to. Back in the office, Mila knows that everybody is going to be monitoring her every move, but she just doesn't care. Enter Ling, a dual PhD holder, asking her to get a good coffee at Lorenzo's office. And at this point, Mila is losing it because she thought like he might be back in Italy, but he's not. He's there. He's going to be working on the project with all of them. So, before she goes into Lorenzo's office, however, she has to run to the toilet because she's sick. She starts vomiting and she thinks to herself, as she cleans up, she's never sick. The last time that she was sick, she was pregnant, and her and her husband really haven't been doing it much until that last time where you were like, oh, is this even consensual? So if the math is right, this baby is not his. Again, quick summary of, of all of that. And what she's even wondering isn't like whose child this might be, rather if it's another girl. Is the tracker going to be snapped on her wrist right as she is born? 
Ling takes her back to Lorenzo's office and she knows about the affair, we're going to learn soon enough, and warns her about the adultery wagon, because there are rules about many things in this new world, and obviously there are rules on fucking. If anyone knew that she was having an affair for two years, or even if she was to have slept with somebody else outside of her marriage even once, she would be handed over to a convent on national television, with a daily word maximum of zero, if someone called in an infraction. As for the pregnancy, she knows that the reverend would definitely make an example out of her, because she remembers two months ago when the two of them, Lorenzo and her, met at the supermarket, and he told her to meet him at the alley for them to, like, basically drive away to the cottage where they used to meet up. They did it without condoms, clearly, because she is pregnant. However, they did it without condoms, because condoms are very hard to get with this new regime. They don't just sell them behind the counter. Rather, now they sell bibs and sippy cups and, you know, diapers, everything for the babies, because Bible Belt spread is not about the contraception. You can't really get condoms in shops. The last resort for you to actually get contraception would be if you were a guy, so you really can't get them if you're a woman, because, like, if you're a woman, you can only sleep with your husband, and then it's encouraged to have as many kids as possible. And if you were a guy, you can only get it in, like, red district of sorts, like, where you would go to brothels. So, if she is to get discovered for engaging in adultery in an affair, either she will end up in a convent or a sex club, basically selling her body. So, Lynn brings her back from these thoughts, reminding her that she's got a lot more to lose than her voice. Project manager enters the picture, his name is Morgan, we hate his guts, and he introduces a deadline. They're brief not to socialize after work, not to discuss the project with anyone behind these walls. And they go up to a security checkpoint when they get into the building and when they leave, so they can't, like, smuggle things in, smuggle things out. Morgan leads them into the lab where they see some mice and they see some bunnies, and even though Mila is sick to her stomach, they, she's also now pregnant, so she has the morning sickness on top of all of that, she knows that if they're to draw on this project for as long as possible, she's going to have to kill a few mice. Now, there's a door behind this lab, and once Morgan leaves them there, they see the set of radioactive stuff, like we're talking MRI machines, EEG, so the full biochem lab. And this is where Morgan leaves them alone to, like, assess the new equipment. And Ling and Mila are having the same reaction of, like, holy shit, the amount of money that went, like, on this, that was spent here, by their calculations, they would have spent 25 million just for this room, just for the equipment that is in this room. However, also what they notice is that every piece of equipment is brand new. So it seems like the equipment had been there after Bob Myers had been involved in a skiing accident, while the other room that they just came out of with all of the animals was quite smelly, as if those animals had been there for a while, longer than the brother had been in the extensive care. Mila speaks with Lorenzo to find out 
that he was the person who actually asked for her, that he was the one requesting for Morgan, for Mila to be on this project, and that he was the one saying that they can do it all in a month. So she thinks he still has fire in him. He still is there for me. Speaking of people, other people that have fire, this brings another Gina Juarez flashback. And this was when Gina met Peter, saying that men come in two flavors, real men and sheep. If she wanted to switch over to her team, to Gina's team, she'd want a man who is tough when she needed him to be. Gina didn't turn up to Mila's wedding, and all of a sudden Mila thought she turned more into Gina than she ever thought she would. But she can't meet with Gina, even though now she could possibly even contact somebody to inquire where she is because she has her voice back, and she knows Gina is likely at a farm somewhere sleeping in a cell with a man she doesn't even know, because Gina is not one of those women who would fold, marrying a man just to feed the statistics of the new government for the award of 100 words a day. After work, Mila catches up with her parents, who are in Italy, so they're catching up, I would assume, over Skype, and this would be from the only device that she can use, like the laptop that is based in uh, Peter's office, while he's the one making dinner. And when they mention the visit home, like when is she going to come around and visit, Mila can't promise them anything, because she doesn't have a passport. As she finishes a call, she notices there is a top-secret envelope on Peter's desk. So, of course, he's like President Science Advisor, this is going to be some <laughs> important information, and she smartly so notices, like, who the fuck named, like, information that shouldn't be open, like, shouldn't be, like, calling for the attention top-secret, like, that's going to make you open up the motherfucking envelope, because it says top-secret, like, you're curious, so she opens it up. And what she sees there is a brief, which, like, yeah, cool, like, he is, like, you know, one of the top people in the country, like her husband is, science advisor, works for the president. However, what is odd is that in the brief, there are three teams mentioned. So there is a white team, and then I think, like, there's gold and silver. Her, Lorenzo, and uh, Ling are on the white team, but how come that they're free? Before she thinks about, like, how can I actually get more information on this, how do I milk the answer for this, like, Stephen barges into the house, and he doesn't go to the dinner table. He instead goes to his room. So Mila follows him and asks him, like, is everything okay? To which Stephen, for the first time in this whole saga, confides in his mom, or rather, asks her a very personal question. If you knew that someone did something bad, would you rat them out? And Mila really thinks on this, like, she really sits on this, because maybe, like, a year ago, year and a half ago, she would have, without a second thought, said, like, yes, like, do the right thing. But right now, with the position that herself is in, and, like, other women, she has no idea what this refers to. And she says, it really depends on the situation. Her thoughts during dinner, and honestly, like, before going to sleep, are that maybe Stephen knows of her affair. Maybe it's her that he actually wants to rat out. And when the sirens wake them up in the middle of the night, that is her first thought. However, she then sees that the cars are there for the neighboring house. 
And as they all look through the window, they see the neighbor's daughter, Julia, being taken away. Mila is screaming, Stephen, what have you done? As she is running outside of her house into the neighbor's yard because she sees that her neighbor, Liv, is going after Julia as she's being zapped because she's asking, pleading with these men, using all of the words that she has left and more to ask them to take her instead of her own daughter. Stephen would only emerge from his room to see Julia be taken to her permanent home. So, when Mila goes back in, asking him what he had done, he tells her it wasn't my fault. She said she just wanted to make out. It wasn't supposed to happen. So, Stephen reported Julia for sleeping with him before marriage, and this, of course, is punishable because there are rules about fucking in this regime. And a man is not to be punished, but a woman is. She, Mila, asks Peter, like, if he can do something, if he can speak to the reverend, to the president, tell them they didn't actually have sex, like, lie, or say that it was Peter's fault. And next morning, of course, um, Stephen comes downstairs, like, I feel sick, like, I don't want to go to school, and Mila forces him to go in, because she knows they're going to be showing a TV program where the reverend is going to make an example out of this poor girl, who is, again, only 16 years of age, and she wants her son to see the consequences of his own actions. Julia is going to be shown on TV with her hair completely shaven off, and the reverend recites the pure manifesto. Just then, Mila gets a phone call about her mom, who is in the hospital in Italy after she had had aneurysm. And this also would affect the left hemisphere of her brain, Wernicke's area. So, if Mila was to be there or, you know, be able to, like, transport the serum that she's working on somehow to her mom, she could technically get her to recover but she can't do anything because she's helpless and stranded in the U.S. After finding this out, Mila still has to go to work. She still has to go into the lab to work on this serum, possibly even save her mom one day. So, she sees the postman, and she immediately approaches him, asking him if he can take Celia, if, like, his wife possibly can, like, babysit her for the day, because she wanted to leave her in the neighbor's home. However, they are now grieving. He obviously accepts, and when Mila drops off Celia at this farm, which is where the postman and his wife and kids live, she notices that the wife is speaking freely, even though she does have a tracker on her. And this is when the wife briefs her how her husband, the postman, the man that blinks three times, is um, actually an engineer in sheep's clothing. He figured out how to remove the real bracelets and replace them with fake ones that don't work as counters. So, the stables on this farm are an engineering lab. And she kind of points out to her how marriages between whites and blacks are not the same, and how long is it going to take the reverend to realize white women are different from black women. They had to do something. Her husband is the errand boy for the resistance. And finally, Mila feels like she has somebody in her corner. So, she drops her daughter off, and she knows she's in safe hands, because these people are clearly on her side. And at this point, before work, she goes to gynecologist, which is where she finds out exactly what she thought she would, that the child 
has been conceived about eight weeks ago, which would make it Lorenzo's kid, and that it would be a nice Christmas present because it's going to, the birth will happen like roughly around Christmas. It also, like, this particular scene made me think and answer, like, some of the questions as well. Like, what would happen if she had a counter on at this point in time? She wouldn't be able to communicate anything to the gynecologist. Like, no woman would, right? Like, if there are any complications with their pregnancies, they wouldn't be able to describe any symptoms to the GP, to anybody. It's just, like, I think the book does, like, exceptionally well in answering all the questions that you have on the tracker. Kind of like the, like, the opinions were not left for the final parts, because, like, so many things in this book I just found, like, extremely impressive. Like, every question I had was just immediately answered. We also find out of Mila's age here, because she's considered of advanced maternal age, because she's 43 years old. But the gynecologist tell her, tells her there's nothing to worry about, and how... Like, obviously, like, there are no complications, confirming that she's pregnant for two months. And this makes her think, like, abortion is not an option, and not because she's pregnant for two months. Like, technically, she could still abort, but it's not even because of the laws of the country, but more of because the way women are. No one would want a girl. So, of course, abortions are not going to be legally allowed. No one would want to put a word tracker on a three-month-old, but she might have to. She is to come back in a week to find out the gender of the baby, and then she will possibly have to make a certain decision, a really, really drastic one. Back in the office, Mila shares the discovery. So, the discovery of the three teams that she had read in the top-secret letter with the rest of her team, like, while the MRI machines are running. And the machines are running to mask the sound. So, Ling leaves the two of them in the room, Lorenzo and Mila, and the two of them, like, start making out. She comes just in time to interrupt them as one of Morgan's right-hand men, called Poe, barges in. So, Poe, you know, follows them, directs them to Morgan's office, and this is when, when they're in the elevators and, like, seeing the key cards that he has against the ones that they have, they realize they only have the access to certain rooms with their card keys. Morgan tells Mila off for being late, and he kind of goes into this whole spiel of, like, you see, this is why the old way didn't work, where women used to work. This is why women in the 50s had their house and their cars. They took care of the kids. It was all done in the way that it was supposed to go. They didn't have these issues, like childcare and period cramps. And this brings another memory of Mila's of how after the order was made, right after the election, even those who didn't have the marching boots ready were ready to protest, but how it was too late. Like, even her husband, Peter, would tell her to skip some of the marches because, again, of her role and, like, her job position in the country, and because he heard in the office that men planned to shut her up. Now, obviously, at this point, she didn't think that it was possible to shut up half of the workforce. The workforce couldn't be cut in half. They can't shut up, possibly, half of the population. So, she tells Morgan she's going to work over the weekend and trial the serum on the first test subject, or the first human test subjects, next week. They leave the office, seeing that Morgan is reviewing a file 
under the project name. And Mila thinks like, okay, he probably has like all of the stats, like all of the things that we have done in the past, like all of the research, because of course, like they called us in, like they managed to approve of our trackers being of us being on the projects. However, there's no chance that all of that can fit into one binder. So, so far, her clues are that Morgan's binder has a broken spine, that there must be multiple labs with this new equipment, and new machines were bought right after President's brother had an accident. With this new bodyguard, this guy Poe, following them around uh, and giving them access to only the rooms that they need, Ling and Mila think of like Mila pretending to be sick, so the two of them, Ling and Lorenzo, are going to like accompany her to the car with like you know bringing her like the shoulders for Mila to communicate this new information about like the new equipment and about the binder in Morgan's room. And taking her to the car, they ask her, like, can she go back to Peter's study to see if there's any more documents to find out anything more about the project? She says yes, and as Lorenzo puts her in the car, he asks her if she's going to tell her husband about the baby. And she says, well, her husband is a medical doctor. He's going to know that it's not his. So she still hadn't made that decision. Mila will pick up her daughter from the farm, and you really see a clear switch in this child, like who wanted the two days before to have the lowest word count to someone who can't wait to go back tomorrow, play with the animals, and just speak freely. What would she do to stay free, is what Mila is wondering. Lorenzo has something cooking, she can just sense it, that he has some sort of plan, and she is thinking, what if it's a way out? Would she leave behind the boys and Peter? Because she knows she would not be able to leave her daughter, Sylvia, behind. As they're parking up at their place, they see that there is a real ambulance in front of the neighbor's house, and the ambulance is there for Liv. So, obviously, like, Mila hushes her daughter into the house, but she takes a glance of Liv on the stretcher. Her fingers, this is very grim, okay? Her fingers are completely burnt, and she only has, like, a stub left where her wrist once was. As she marches into her own house, she, like, confronts Peter, like, what the hell happened? Because she had heard of women like this, where her family member, the loved one, is taken away by the government, by the movement placed in these camps, how it affects them, how they try to die by suicide themselves. Peter, who is sick to his stomach, tells Mila how the husband next door, leaves husband, thought of everything. Like, he shut off the electricity, he took out the knives, he inspected the room before Olivia went in for a nap. However, what she managed to do once she was in her room, when her husband was in the garage, she found a dictaphone. Um, I believe she was, like, a secretary before, before the half of the workforce was completely shut off, and she recorded the words, I'm so sorry, Julia, and then pressed play. And the recorder just started going into a loop, and after the first few charges to her body, after the word count went over 100, even if she wanted to reach for the recorder to press stop, she wouldn't have been able to. When did it get so bad? Peter said. We did everything we can, but when did it get so fucking bad? Mila spots the use of word we, but before she calls it out, Stephen walks in. 
And he tells her exactly what happened in school, that Julia's conversion to a camp and her being strapped with a counter of zero had been broadcasted on TV, that the students were made to scream at the TV and also write hateful letters to Julia. The letters would be of the nature of them wishing that she breaks her back in the field, that she can't feel her palms, all of the hateful things that they will going to share with her. And when Mila asks him, did you do it? He said he did, because he had to. They all have dinner, and Miller checks that Stephen is not going to do anything to himself before waiting for Peter to fall asleep. Now, as soon as he does, um, she, I think, breaks into his safe, like that is in the room with the screwdriver, and this is when she finds the keys to the study. She goes to the study, checks for the documents there, and with the keys she can open the letterbox, and this is where she sees an envelope. So she goes into the toilet to hide and read what's in this document. At this moment in time, she has, yes, thought of an excuse of saying, like, oh, yeah, I was in your study, you know, to, like, bring my parents and check on my mom's state. Or she's thinking, well, I will be considered a thief, I can only hope that nobody's monitoring these cameras 24-7, otherwise there will be definitely... They'll have a proof, I'm going to follow in Julia's footsteps. But as she is reading through this document, she kind of has her doubts confirmed. She sees goals for her team, the other team's goals seem to produce the opposite. So, Wernicke serum instead of anti-Wernicke serum. And then there is a third team, and they're to find out a way to make the Wernicke serum water-soluble. I'm going to simplify this in the way that I interpreted it. I would like in the comments for you to put, like, if you read this book, like, how do you picture it? I feel like this is where the... It's done in such a complicated way when it shouldn't have been, right? So, her team, Ling Lorenzo and Mila, are working on anti-Wernicke serum for a person to retrieve back their speech, their voice, the ability to speak fluently. Second team is working on Wernicke the serum that induces aphasia, making people speak gibberish, rather making people become mute. And the third team is working on making the second serum, the one that is to silence the population, water-soluble. Another thing that she notices is that the Wernicke project timeline, so the second team's timeline, had started months ago, not a few days ago. And as she's reading this in the toilet, she hears Peter on the other side, like he had woken up, he wants to check the toilet, she says she's sick, and then he kind of says, well, you're never sick, like, you're not pregnant, right? And it kind of, like, stays on that, she waits for him to go back to sleep, she puts the envelope in the mailbox, and goes and calls her dad to see if, like, she can check up on the mother, and obviously the dad asks her if she can fix her. Now, the next morning, the kids go into her room and they're singing happy birthday song to her because she's 44 on this date and she had completely forgotten about her birthday. Well, I say the kids, everybody except for her oldest son, because Stephen actually is gone. Peter goes into the room and tells her that he left a note saying, gone to look for Julia. And he says, like Peter says, he might actually know 
where he went. He shows his wife like this footage that they were showing in school that she didn't have to watch because she was at work. And for the first time here, Mila actually thinks that her husband might be part of the resistance, that he might be on her side. She thinks about Reverend going on TV the second she accepted to help. Like, would that mean that the work she's doing was never classified, or if it was president that declassified it by telling the world about it. There were typos in the document that she read hidden in the bathroom last night about the other teams, all of them but hers, and she hoped her team can help her figure this out. Mila snaps coming back into the office because, again, Morgan tells her how she's late, and she basically snaps being like, okay, do you want to go to the president and, like, tell him that um, we are going to take a month off, like, from trying to get his brother to recover? No, so shut the fuck up, like, I'm here over the weekend. However, she notices Ling is not there, and this is highly suspicious, but neither of them, like, Mila and Lorenzo are basically pushed to work on this serum and test it on these mice, so they all kind of ignore it and be like, yeah, maybe she's just going to come in late and, like, get the same scolding from our boss. Mila tells Lorenzo about what she had read last night, that only them, only this team, is working on anti-Wernicke serum and that the word anti is missing for the other two teams. The two of them can only think that there is somebody in this lab, like whether it's Poe or somebody knows that there is an underground operation and that their work is being reverse-engineered somewhere in the same building in one of the other labs, that all of them are working on a serum that would cause aphasia. And the only reason they can think of why is to effectively silence half of the population, like when the trackers just won't cut it. If they were to catch, like, members of the resistance, right, they can threaten them with the family members, they can threaten them to silence their family members and to give up the others and then, like, obviously silence everybody. As they're waiting to see how the serum works on mice, Lorenz and Mila do the stupid fucking thing where they go to their love shack, like, they all drive their separate ways and they do the thing. They have sex and after that they're like, oh my god, we have to, like, get out of this bubble and return to reality and I'm like, yes. Yes, also your friend hadn't come to work, like, anybody, can anybody just pick up on that? Like, that's a fucking red flag. Your friend just didn't come to work, while well, she clearly should have. So, Mila asks Lorenzo for him to bring the serum, right, like, once they have it, once it's tested on mice and they realize it works, they test it on the real, like, human subject, to bring it to Italy for her mom before everything goes to shit. And after... This, Lorenzo just hands her the envelope with some passports in it. And the passport has Mila's picture on it, but somebody else's name. The name is Gloria something, and she asks, like, oh, who is this? And it's the name of his ex-wife who died years ago. We don't find out shit about Lorenzo's life here. We just move on from this. Uh, Mila says that she can't leave, but then kind of thinks, like, what if... I'm expecting a girl. And she goes into the shower and thinks, like, how long does she have to actually even, like, think about this, to make this, like, very important decision. She remembers Gina and her going on a holiday when they were still friends, and Mila wanting to stay an extra day, while Gina asks her, would it matter? 
saying that she can't stay in the vacation bubble forever. Herfold didn't start signing up for this project, but two decades ago, when she first refused to vote. They have another hour left before they have to return to the lab, like once the mice have processed the serum. Fuck knows. Anyways, they have like an hour and they're ruminating on if Lorenzo could take a baby, if the baby is a girl, right? And the decision is made. If it's a girl, Mila is going to go with him. And I think her plan is to take Cecilia, and if this baby is a girl, take this girl as well. They return to the lab, Ling still isn't there, and they're still like completely chilled about this thing. But they go to the lab to see like, yes, what was the reaction when it comes to the mice? And the serum worked as they wanted. With the mice, like either vibrant and like, I mean, they're not saying words, right? But the serum functioned, and the other batch seemed to have been killed. So Lorenzo packs up the serums accordingly and puts them in the fridge, obviously with the ones that killed the mice, like, marked in red. I think this is another indication that the Wernicke serum in itself isn't water-soluble, because it fries the brains of the subjects killing them, rather than just making the mute, based off of this scene, like, of the mice being killed. Now, Mila wants to see Morgan, but Poe is not around, so they find her a new escort, and she makes friends with this guy in the elevator, she notices how young he is, she notices, like, this might be a man that can be manipulated, that might be, like, part of the resistance, and he, we know him just by his last name, Zabrowski, and he blinked at her three times. That is how she knew for sure. And we learned that blinking three times here means you're blinking for not pure. Morgan asks her to change the subject test for tomorrow, because, like, hey, they have just worked on the mice. It worked. Yeah, a human can be tested right away. So pushing this project forward. And she sees this as the kind of leeway to, like, try to negotiate help for her mother. Like, can we put her on a subject list? What if, like, you send me and then send me right back? Like, issue a passport? He's like, of course, we can't do that. Like, you know, the travel rules and what they look like right now. So, like, okay, if you can't send me, can you send Lorenzo? And Morgan says, like, he's Italian. Sorry, Mila. Like, you know, what if he betrays his country and just, like, stays around? It can't be done. She also asks him, does he know where Ling is? And he doesn't. He just seems very nonchalant about it, like, compared to how he reacted to her being late this day. Everyone seems to be working today, even though it's a Saturday, something that Mila would notice as Zabrowski escorts her back to the lab. And Zabrowski seems to be an ally, like he offers to help if she needs it while bringing her downstairs. Once she's downstairs and she checks on the mice, Mila also uses the opportunity to, like, write a word, because she knows, like, she notices there's, like, a Bunsen burner, right? So she writes the word bioweapon and shares it with Lorenzo, and then just immediately burns that piece of paper. And to her, it makes sense. The project anti-Wernicke, Wernicke, and then solubility. Spiking a water supply, and bang, without a sound. Like, does it sound insane? Does it sound insane as the way to mute half of the population? Yes, but so is the reverend. 
When she asks Lorenzo if he heard from Ling, she finds out that Ling was supposed to meet her friend Isabel last night. However, Lorenzo thinks they're just friends, but Mila knows otherwise. Mila knows that the two of them were actually engaged. So Ling had a girlfriend called Isabel, they became her fiancé before the regime. And as soon as the new president had taken his place at the White House, they had to cancel their engagement. So what if Ling and all of them have been followed? By this point, Ling might be on a farm somewhere herself. Back home that evening, Peter faces her because he knows that she had been in his study and he's not buying into, like, her story. He basically offers her a beer and gets her to come outside on the porch with him. This is where he would share a story about a guy that worked for the resistance. And before he died, um, he asked Peter if he is as pure as the rest of them. He left him, Peter, with a name and a number before, under a pretext of a team-building exercise, they bring them, these traitors, the men that are not considered to be pure, like they discover working with the underground team, where the reverend reads the scripture, of course he does, um, and they show them in front of the other men to basically make the example of them. But something that I spotted, right, this isn't broadcasted. They don't advertise this on TV because it would show that there are traitors, that there are men who don't agree with the regime and you don't want to show that to the world. So Peter tells her that when they come for him, it's better if she doesn't know anything. And as for their son, Stephen, if they catch him, he will probably meet the same fate. Peter also begs her to get out, like, any way that she can. He mentions Lorenzo, and this is where we find out that Peter is a lot more honed in than we think he is. They actually now sit in the kitchen and go over these documents that apparently they still have in the house about, like, the formulas and stuff, like, that Lorenzo and Mila used to share in the lab, but Peter can understand because he's, again, a medical doctor himself. He still doesn't know about the baby, he still doesn't know about the pregnancy, but he does tell her to take Sylvia away. And as they're going through these documents on the serum, Peter also discovers, like, some love notes, like, poems from Lorenzo to his wife, and he asks her if she's also in love with him, and her silence gives her away. He asks Mila, what would you do for things to go back to normal? Would you kill? Mila says yes, but we don't have to. All we need to do is take away their voices. After going through these documents here at the kitchen table, Peter also says to her that the serum is already water-soluble. And for their purposes, like, of making sure that they take away their voices now, which is what this book becomes from this point on, Mila needs to get her hands on the serum by Monday, because this is when Peter is to appear at this meeting at the White House. So, getting into the lab on Sunday, Mila notices that some of the tubes that killed the mice that were, like, you know, marked in bright red, that Lorenzo labeled, are missing. And she asks Morgan if he took them, but he kind of swerves the question. So she goes for a different approach, being like, how plugged in are you, Morgan? Like, you must be, like, up there with the higher-ups. And this is where he reveals that he is also going to be among the attendees of that meeting in the White House on Monday. So 
we are led to believe like he is there because he has something to show for, right? They're about to test it on a human subject and he has something to show the president and possibly like even, you know, cure his brother. Lorenzo walks in and says like he will be working through the night, doing everything to ensure that they have a cure for the brother and kind of to signal what's going on, Mila starts the conversation of like, oh my god, like, you know who is plugged in? Like, you know who here in this room among us will have the access to the White House? Not you, not me, but this guy, Morgan. And like, Lawrence is kind of like, okay, that's, that's what we are doing. However, like the vials, right, are missing from this fridge. So the test subject, the two human test subject is um, let in and it just so happens to be the postman's mother. She is injected with the serum, with the anti-Wernicke serum, and it works. She immediately starts talking and addressing how, like, oh my god, I hope, like, no animals have suffered here as, like, test subjects. And the two of them are, on one side, like, very happy, but also Mila feels like her life is over, because if their work here is done, they're just going to be sent home. She's going to have the counter back on her wrist. With Morgan now out of the room to tell the superiors, we are to presume how the anti-Wernicke system actually works, Lorenzo's eyes move towards the fridge. There's still some of the vials that are in red, so like the serum that fried the brains of all of those mice, right? And Zabrowski seemed to have been on a night shift. So her only other ally, Mila's only other ally is home now. So her and Lorenzo have to think of a plan and they need to do it now. Mila does the unhinged thing, like they replace the vials with like whatever, like some random liquid, probably like water. So Lorenzo does that while Mila is placing the liquid from those red vials. So the Wernicke, serum, the one that will fry the brains of anybody else, she's placing the liquid of it into latex gloves and then hiding it in her body. From what I got, she had it, you know, in the coach. She's like, yeah, I gave birth to, like, four kids. I can place it here and be uncomfortable for a few hours. I'm like, girl, you do whatever you, you have to do, I guess. And she does that because she knows if they're being kicked out now and she's going to be searched at a security checkpoint as she's leaving the workplace. That's exactly what happens. Poe picks them up and, like, basically is kicking them out of the building. She passes the security point without them actually finding that serum hidden in her couch. Lorenzo hands her over an envelope with a passport and actually possibly, like, a burner phone just as they're in the car. And she pours the serum from where she's hiding it into a sippy cup that she ended up having in this car that Sylvia used to drink from. So they ring Peter from Lorenzo's phone and tell him that they're on their way home. However, just as they're about to reverse, get the fuck out of that parking lot, Morgan runs after them, saying that they need her inside. And she knows she wouldn't be needed inside unless they're to put the torture device back on. But Morgan is followed with a bodyguard, and this bodyguard has a gun on him pointed at them. So they have no other option but to go back in, leaving the sippy cup with Wernicke serum, the bioweapon in it behind, as well as her ticket out. 
Morgan leads them through the lines of cubicles to a section of this building they have never been in. And he leaves them to other test subjects. These test subjects, they will notice, are chimps. And this is because, well, Nila thinks they are the animals closest to humans' race and they're left for last, for the last test subjects, for the serum to be tested on. And, well, penultimate, rather, because both of them are thinking they're about to test the bioweapon on them. Mila has a flashback of Link giving her the lab tour when she first started working there, saying never stay in the middle and never come too close to the stages. But at this point, because of how she's positioned between Morgan and Lorenza, this is what happens to her. One of the chimps kind of, like, puts his, um, paw arm... Don't question me on the anatomy of the chimps, please. He, like, grabs her by the hair and a guard that was there shoots. And he just shot one of the chimps. Morgan is pissed as fuck that, like, he just shot one of the test subjects instead of, like, her, I guess. She's pissed off about that. They have the first aid kit. They basically, like, heal that wound. I don't know why any of this was necessary for the book, because after that, they go back to that cubicle section. And this is where Morgan puts them on another project, because it appears they are not done as of yet. He actually says to them, in simple terms, they have the anti-Wernicke serum. Now he wants the same thing, but different. So Lorenzo is like the complete opposite. Neuroprotein that induces Wernicke aphasia. And he doesn't give them any explanations, so Lorenzo asks him, what did they promise you? Morgan. To which he says, just give me what I want. Both of them say no, to which then now he points to the bodyguard and asks them to show Lorenzo and Mila what is in room one. Maybe that will actually motivate them to end up producing this serum that is now doing the complete opposite, this bioweapon, until the end of the night. Once they're brought inside of room one, they will be faced with three women. Gina will not be the way that Mila remembers her. Her skin is gray and everything apart from her palms that look like fresh meat from a year of labor. Ling and Isabel are the other two women. Morgan caught them making out in a car. He's saying, like, fucking dykes. And then he obviously imprisoned them to hold all three of these women above this people's heads to get them to produce the serum that is technically going to mute half of the population. He is there with a soldier that has the gun pointed at them, but they have something over him, the formula for the serum, because he doesn't have the notes. They have to go back to work, the clock is ticking, and they have 18 hours before that White House meeting, which now it seems like Morgan has to show up with something else for the Reverend and the people there, not just, like, to save the brother, but also to think of how to deploy the whole bioweapon onto the women, like the half of the workforce, the half of the population. With a promise to Gina that she will do everything she can, everything she should have done, they leave and go back to the array of married men, because this is something they noticed with the first round of the cubicle, that every man had a ring on the left ring figure. Is that where you have it in the US? Anyways, it's different in different countries, right? They notice that the men are married, and possibly thinking, like, how many of them have children? Neither of these 
this man is volunteering, meaning that we can use this against them. As they enter this lab, TV there shows the reverend narrating the speech. Mila didn't know what to expect, anybody on TV but her own son. We don't see what happens to Stephen off the screen, and Morgan tells them they're not going home that night, that nobody is leaving. There are beds somewhere on the premises, on like fifth floor or wherever, but that neither of them is leaving until he has something to show for at the White House. About a few hours in, Lorenzo whispers to Mila, however, saying that the serum is done. No one else seems to notice, but Lorenzo and Mila have the first subject for the bioweapon in mind. The hitch is that this serum is not water-soluble. It has to be administered through the skin. From what I got, it's intracranial, so like lobotomy-style manner. I don't know, don't ask me why. Don't ask me why, why this part was so overly complicated, right? But the plan is put into action. Mila is to go to the main desk, because now Zabrowski will be back for the night shift, that ally guard that they have on their side, and she is to make a phone call to her husband, basically to signal to him what's happening, because now she also believes that Peter is on their side. Obviously, she can't make a phone call herself. She has to leave notes for Zabrowski to communicate to Peter, and the instructions that he is to relay are to pick up the car from the parking lot, because she's not coming home that evening, to get Sylvia the sippy cup. She would have a meltdown if she is to go home without it. And she knows that's a code, as Sylvia is six years old, and she clearly doesn't need a liquid that is inside of the sippy cup for Peter to know that that is what he can use to, like, disarm anybody, inject anybody with, fry their brains, and possibly, like, even bring it into the White House meeting, right? And after the call, she blinks to Zabrowski three times, just sort of to confirm he is on her side. Before she heads to the elevator to go back to Lorenzo and work on this serum, Zabrowski and Mila exchange a couple of words. He asks her, because she is a scientist, what is going to happen to his little girl. Because Zabrowski has a girl who is about one year old. She's not talking because of the regime. Will she grow up to be secluded and miserable? And can she help? And Mila responds that, as an expert, she can tell him that the kids have only a few years until their brains don't function, but she better go to work. So now, with this kind of in the back of his head, like, my own child is going to be just completely mute for the rest of her life, like, completely live in misery, he accompanies her back to the lab. And at this lab, where three-quarters of the men have PhDs, they just need to turn them against Morgan and use this new ally in their favor. Because the men have been working around the clock for the whole week, and it's now Sunday, they somehow managed to convince them to go and get some rest. And during that night shift, Mila also goes to do some light reading on the subject to figure out how to, like, I don't know, deploy this serum. And she also goes, gets, like, two hours of sleep. 
And this is when Lorenzo and Zebrowski put a plan into action. They empty the lab of the chimps, they sedate them, and uh, they strap them to the gurney. Mila's now awake, coming into this place, which I suppose is now empty of these men. They're all somehow sleeping. The chimps are now on gurneys, sedated with their sides of the heads shaved. Zabrowski unlocks the three women and Ling is needed to help out with this operation. So these women still have the tracker and Ling is trying to operate on this person. She's communicating with Lorenzo in sign language. It's never explained how the fuck she learned that, okay? They inject the chimp and lock him back up in the cage to see the effect, but then Morgan is the person that they completely ignored. He's the one that was not accounted for, and when they turn around, he is holding a syringe to Lorenzo's neck. This serum can't be injected through the bloodstream, though, or it will fry somebody's brain. So, Lorenzo calls Mila by her nickname, and Morgan picks up on that, figuring out, finally, that the two of them are engaging in an affair, saying like, oh, this is going to be great, I'm gonna kill two birds with one stone, like, you have no idea what's gonna happen to you, what would happen if I just start pushing down on this syringe? Mila pleads with him, and she asks him, like, just let this bodyguard, right, like, this guard here, Zabrowski, shoot him, like, how are you going to explain one of your top scientists being brain dead? Like, you have the White House meeting, how the fuck are you going to explain that? And everything from this point on, happens in the blink of an eye. Zabrowski shows up at the door, and because Mila is unsure who he's going to shoot, with Morgan giving him the order to shoot somebody, she directs his weapon, and the shot is fired. Gina takes care of cleaning up the scene. Morgan is the one that was shot, he's dead. Mila killed the man, as she said she would when she was asked what would she do for things to go back to normal. Ling gives them the lab coat so they cover up, like, the blood from their body, but they get discovered. Poe is there, and he takes the gun from Zabrowski, putting them all kind of, like, in a single file, as if they were in school, and taking them away. He leads them to a room in this building, and this is where they see Steven. Obviously, like, Mila kind of falls into his arms, they hug, and Poe gives them three black trackers. These are fake trackers, just for them to get out of the building. It's 2 a.m., they're told to stay quiet, and once out, they get to the back of the van. Poe waves the envelope with the presidential seal to the guards at the entrance to let them out, and the van in front is manned by the postman and his wife, so it seems like they're safe. Gina, Ling, and Isabel have their bracelets off with the help of the wife, and the first thing that Gina says is, holy fuck, that was worse than the meditation retreat I went to years ago. They tell them about how they freed Stephen by disarming the guards, like, probably frying their brains, by injecting them with a sippy cup bioweapon. I don't know. I don't know how much of their bioweapon was there. We don't really know. Um, they make it to the postman's house, and this is where Peter is waiting for them. We speed up to the early morning. Peter kisses them all goodbye, and he's driving away with a single vial in his briefcase as he's headed to the White House meeting. One of the participants to that meeting would be the president, the other one would be his brother, who is recovered from aphasia, and another one is the reverend. I put here, okay, a side note on the brother. Either 
The plot is that he was already injected with the anti-vernity serum after it was tested on the lady subject, like the postman's mother, or nothing was wrong with him and the whole ski accident was just a ploy for the reverend to have the top scientists working on the complete opposite, the bioweapon to silence half of the population. And I'm kind of leaning towards the latter option. Mila, as Peter is off to the White House, ends up calling the gynecologist uh, to cancel off her appointment completely. She doesn't want to know the gender of the baby. Her mind is made up. She needs six passports, not one. But some hours later, the car parks up, Poe runs out of it, Peter was shot escaping that White House meeting. And it seemed like he was shot by the guys on the roof of the White House, the ones that are always hidden. And when he took that bullet, he was smiling. We find out that they planned a funeral, where we hear the women are talking among each other. The entire country is in the state of transition. TV had stayed quiet for the first few days. The storm is still to linger. Gina will take care of the movement, while for the time being Mila, the kids, and Lorenzo have to go. They find refuge in Canada while they wait on their actual passports. Women marched until their wrists and mouths were free. And the new president took crane. We find out that 25% of women are now in the Senate and the House. For now, Mila doesn't plan to get into politics. The kids are enjoying Italian air, and so is she. The end. I got thoughts, and like, let me first go through the issues that I took with this book, and you let me know about your opinions in the comments, and then I'll tell you like what I loved personally about it. So if you thought I was the one rushing through that second part, I don't know, because I was on a you know, word limit myself. No. Once the thread of the project starts unraveling, the book is just plummeting. It's just, everything is happening, like, within a couple of lines, without any further explanations. You know, they're suddenly in the lab, there's an ally, there's chimps for whatever fucking reason. You know, like, things are happening where some of it is a filler, some of it is just, like, left on a very open-ended note. And I personally didn't like about it. I didn't like not getting the answers to certain parts in that part of the book compared to all of the answers that I did get with the first part of it. Like, the answers like um, what happened during the White House meeting. Were the men poisoned? Was it by drinking water? I personally thought at some points during the book that Peter is going to sacrifice himself and that he's going to drink water so that he is not prosecuted. Apparently, that's not what happened. Did uh, Mila's mom get cured? How? How did they exactly even save Stephen before all of this for him to then, like, appear at a lab? Like, because, again, if there is a checkpoint, that means either more people are in on it, in on the resistance, they let him in, or they let him in so that he's killed and, like, the anti wernicke serum is used on him with his mom in the... I, listen, there's so many questions that I'm like, okay, what the fuck? But the future. The future is one, like, where I probably hold the most issues with. I also think this was done on purpose. The where do we go from here, right? Once the race and the voices were liberated, once everything is, quote-unquote, back to normal and the country is recovering, what is next? And I think 
this is what many women wonder now when the rights to abortion have been taken away, and that's why I kind of feel like the writer, Christina Delcher, was doing this on purpose, to leave you feeling unsettled the way that you kind of felt as a woman reading the rest of this book. My main pet peeve, though, like what destroyed an otherwise amazing book, is the scientific lingo. I understand why it mattered to get the plot going. Like, I don't... I'm not saying, like, we shouldn't have had aphasia, we shouldn't have had them working on a serum in the project. I completely get that as part of the book. However, there are some parts of that narrative that are way too complicated. Like, I shouldn't have been googling shit, is what I'm saying, to see, like, oh, no, this is just fictional. And water solubility, that thing, like, just took me completely out. It frustrated me so much when I read that book for the second time. In my personal opinion, we could have still had the same plotline, where, yes, both the mom and the president's brother have the left hemisphere of their brain affected. We could have just stuck to Wernicke and anti-Wernicke serum, so no, like, third team, no water solubility plot, no plot of, like, the chimps and insane amount of, like, time spent on the test subjects. I don't really get why it was there. We could have still had a plot of, like, the free women being held in a room, same amount of allies, and just, I feel like it would have offered us such a smoother plotline in the second half of the book, having, like, a lot more answers compared to questions on that front. Like, I understand why the future of these women was left on an open-ended note. I don't get why this whole scientific thing was so prevalent when, again, a lot of it was fictional the cure, the diagnosis, the treatment for it was all fictional, so why not simplify it in the first place? Now, what I loved about this book is it nailed the portrayal of radicalization. Like, I was so fucking psyched, especially, especially the implementation of the trackers and just what they do. It answered every single question that I have had, right? From visits to the doctors, to how do you teach your child to acclimate to less words with positive reinforcements, how women have no option but to stay married, then um, how, like, they would not basically survive should they live on their own, and the only reasons why they would live there on their own is because they would be segregated, they would be sent to camps. Taking away the kids of the LGBTQ community, placing them with a male family member until they remarry properly. This is something that I don't think I have mentioned. The book only kind of has, like, one sentence on it when they're speaking of the camps. But again, like, it answers every single motherfucking question when it comes to these trackers. When it comes to the propaganda of the regime, I also love the methods that were used, like othering the victims, referring to the regime as it, to distance themselves from the treatment of women, the torture devices, the camps for the LGBTQ community, silent persecutions of the traitors when they're men, but public persecutions of women. And the book intertwines the importance of voting without putting pressure on you as a reader to vote, rather making you think at what point is it too late to protest, to march, to fight for women's rights you see how what you should pay close attention to is what's compulsory to learn about in schools. And I feel like there is a lack of representation on this particular thing 
from at least like the media, any kind of dystopian really, like media, whether it's fictional or based on real life that people put on. Like, and here this book did that so well. Like how they get the boys to demonstrate how trackers work um, in school, but also the whole plotline around the um, philosophy of Christianity, whatever the fuck the subject was called, how it's needed for college credits, and also how it replaced things like biology and history, kind of like letting the people not focus on the important events in the past, rather to focus on this or they will not go to college. Then the whole of the grant being introduced as an advancement and encouragement for boys to get married, for the women to completely just lose the right to opinions and thoughts. Finally, to get you to feel some type of way about the propaganda, we have different perceptions on the people in this universe. So we have Stephen, who is a good foil for his mother's character, constantly presenting the logic behind his radicalization in the eerily understandable way to some, to people who are already radicalized or to the pure man, quote-unquote. Stephen is the character that we all know and could imagine talking to at a Christmas dinner or at a work event. In him, we see men who don't question the regime. They're just followers and fully stand by the ideology, despite seeing how his own mom and sister are treated. And we see the mom's point of view, trying not to hate men in her life, her sons and the men that she chose to marry. Her husband, Peter, is shown as a bystander, the kind of man you know didn't do much when the politics started to shift, that asked his wife to remain silent when women protested the new regime, and the one person who only reacted when the regime affected every aspect of his life. Then we have the added layer of the types of women in the regime, those who resisted, like Gina, and those who didn't like her, the blind followers, like Liv, until again her daughter is taken away from her. Finally, in the realm of propaganda, we see it all through the eyes of her youngest daughter, Sylvia. She is a constant illustration of the pure movement's progress. We see, had she been a toddler, she would have had a tracker on her right away how her progress is stunted, and what happens once the ban on her ability to make opinions is lifted. Through her, we see how the government is using the reward method to further spread the pure movement and take away voices of young girls. Deploying these methods to drive the narrative, the book makes you feel this world on your own skin, making it all feel real. Beyond the laws on abortion, the glass ceiling in the workplace, the restrictions on our thoughts are already in place. Think word limits on social media platforms like Twitter, time constraints if you're creating a YouTube shorts or a video on TikTok, substituting words with emojis as feature on many phones. So far, these constraints apply to all genders. Fictional questions from the book of how long will it take for the government to realize that men and women are not the same can be answered with real-life examples. Once you have your answers, it leaves limited space for imagination on how that would trickle down towards sexuality and race. From one day to another, women can lose their voice. In the fictional world, this outcome led to us relying on men to have a say on us getting our voices back. Would they do the same in real life? And more importantly, what can each and every one of us do to make sure this is never our reality in the first place? And that is the story of Fox. 
just to make the record gay, very, very gay and clear to everybody else, I love this book. I don't think you can say anything that maybe I haven't pointed out that will make me like it less. There are many flaws that, yeah, I have pointed out in the last timestamp in the final thoughts uh, section of this video, and still I am very glad that this book was written. I am so thrilled that Christina had written other books that are kind of in this dystopian style, talking about relationships between women in the concept of our voices being taken away. I would be willing to read many other books that you might recommend in the comments that are on the same topic, because I feel even if I'm to read this book for the 50th time, I would still have that uncomfortable feeling. I would still feel eerie, feel on the edge of my seat, feel like my butt is clenched and like I have goosebumps all over me, thinking, why? Why can I see this as a reality in the very near future, as the book says itself. This book had done a job where it had shaken me from my own bubble, and I know that the idea of the bubble is mentioned quite a few times within it, of just starting to think like, no, you can do something. Each and every individual can do something, even, yes, if they are a child or they are a parent noticing, oh, my child is learning bullshit in this fucking school, what is this subject, why is it changing the whole curriculum, why is it changing what we are actually showing to kids, to then, like, parents, to men and women, people in different, like, political parties, every single one of us can do their bit, and it's just up to us to, like, figure out what the hell is it that we need to do so that we are not just complete bystanders. It does its job where it shakes your reality completely, and I would definitely recommend you read it. I don't care, like, I don't know what gender you are, I don't know what your sexual identity is, I feel like this is, like, a must-read for everybody, despite its flaws, despite its gaps, despite it being sometimes too technical, despite all of that, read this motherfucking book. That is my message to you for the end of this year. As you know, I'm a bit in a limbo of time in terms of um, recording. <laughs> so I'm recording this, like, beginning of August. Uh, my next video on the schedule, which, like, as you will see in this timeline, is all, like, gonna be in the past. So my next video is going to be on Stephen King's Misery. Well, the next one I'm recording, right? And then I will record um, the two two-parters, if that makes sense, which I have planned in my head now, but I'm not going to <laughs> reveal what they're going to be, just in case I don't actually, like, cover those stories for, yes, um, October and November. And that leaves only one video left for December to wrap this year up. And I'm dreading that one, because if I do it the way that I plan to do it, it's going to involve a lot of crying. So just prep for that. Just for, for mentally me saying goodbye, at least, to this channel, like, temporarily, with shedding quite a lot of tears. Just, you know, get your tissues ready, don't watch it during PMS, or do, I don't, I am not the boss of you. For now, may I out and see you in two weeks' time.